some sort of pencil chicken scratch from a scientist in the field in the 1800s. Maybe there's a, a literal fish um, specimen in the Natural History Museum. But then we also have typed letters from the 1920s from like art dealers in New York City. We have documents from going back to the 1600s all up until the present day on everything from science to culture to history um, to women's history, African-American history, um, you name it. It's probably either going to be or has been in the Transcription Center and we launch new projects every single day. Welcome to the Nashman Hive, a podcast with George Washington University's Honey W. Nashman Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service. Here, we tell stories about transformational campus community partnerships. I'm Jordana, your Community Engaged Scholarship Coordinator. You just heard from Caitlin Haynes from the Smithsonian Transcription Project, sharing with Professor Pam Presser's university writing course. Caitlin helps us dig deeper into the power of transcription to share untold stories of our history that shape the way we understand our present day. Let's dive deeper into our history with Caitlin. Team, as a publicly accessible website, um, where all of our many different museums, research centers, libraries, archives, and museum collection units can sort of come together um, to put all of our digitized content from across the institution and invite the public, um, anyone over the age of 14 who's interested, um, to help us improve and enhance those records through transcription, um, making those materials more readable, text searchable and more accessible for anyone around the world. So that you don't have to come to DC to see these collections in person and you can more easily find exactly what you're looking for in the millions of pages of historical documents. All kinds of researchers, genealogists, professional academics, students like yourselves, um, or even just interested curious people can find all kinds of information. Um, not only making it easier for them to read these documents, because some of them are really hard to read, um, but especially um, for individuals with um, hearing or visual impairments, um, transcription makes it easier to access these historical documents. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, uh, many um, public researchers and, and uh, Smithsonian staff who have located their family members um, in our records too, in our historical records from the Smithsonian. So this is making this all possible. Um, secretary Bunch, our secretary of the Smithsonian right now, um, actually has located his own red ancestors in the Freedmen's Bureau, North Carolina records. So it's pretty great. And you all are helping to make that happen. Transcription itself is a three-step process. So obviously register for an account. We do recommend that you guys do that, although you can transcribe anonymously. Um, because if you sign up for an account, you not only can transcribe, but you can also review other transcriptions in the Transcription Center, and you can keep track of your activity in your account. So how many pages you've transcribed, how many pages you've reviewed, um, how many projects you've contributed. We um, launch new transcription projects every day. And again, those are historical materials from all across the Smithsonian's 19 museums, research centers, um, archives, libraries, etc. Um, in many, many different languages, but there's a lot in English, so don't worry. Um, and in a variety of difficulty levels. Why does transcription matter? Why is it important? The Smithsonian obviously has literally millions of historical collections um, within our many different museums. Um, and dating back uh, to the 12th century and prehistoric times from every continent on earth and dealing with a variety of topics. And a lot of that content is digitized and available online, available for people to look through and view online. Um, 
a lot of this content has already been cataloged and is sort of findable in a sense in that, um, you know, maybe you can search for Abraham Lincoln in our databases and it will pull up the fact that we maybe have a few letters from him. Um, but maybe they're not digitized. And even if they are digitized, it doesn't mean that you can find the very kind of intricate details and minutia of those documents. But once that document is transcribed, it means that every single word within the document itself is then text searchable um, and discoverable throughout our online databases. And Hi, yeah, I just have a quick question about like the process. I noticed when we were doing the transcriptions, like obviously not that I would do that, but it kind of seems like you could type whatever you want and like you rely on like the community to peer edit it. And I was wondering like how you guys fact check it and make sure it's accurate. Absolutely, great question. Yes, so you can type whatever you want. Um, we do obviously ask that everyone follows our, the instructions and types exactly what appears in the original document. Um, and we do rely on our community of digital volunteers to both transcribe these documents correctly and review them correctly and work together to make sure that they are accurate. So there's lots of evidence across crowdsource projects. Um, the National Archives has a similar crowdsourcing transcription project called Citizen Archivist. The Library of Congress has one called By the People. And then of course, there's many other kinds of crowdsource transcription projects around the world. Hi, um, could you explain the process for how the Smithsonian acquires the documents um, and decides which ones are like worthy of transcription? Absolutely. So those are sort of two two different things there. Um, so uh, the Smithsonian, obviously, I think a lot of people, even us, <laughs> um, sort of see the Smithsonian as one entity, but the Smithsonian is made up of those 19 different museums, the re nine research centers around the world and the National Zoo. And then within all of those 19 museums are hundreds of different museum departments uh, collection units, archives, and libraries, but they all operate um, very collaboratively with one another, but also independently. So what I mean by that is um, every archive, so there's 16 different archives within the institution and 22 different libraries, um, and then hundreds of different museum departments. Um, but all of those archives and libraries have different collecting focus and policies, meaning that so the Smithsonian Institution Archives, for instance, um, collects historical materials related to the history of the Smithsonian Institution. So our like Board of Regents reports and our curators stuff, um, things from James Smithson, the founder of the Smithsonian, um, whereas the archives at the American History Museum, which is a different unit um, within the American History Museum, they collect things related to the like all of American history. So things that are not just Smithsonian history specific. So that's a lot of sort of the difference, the difference between what is collected by whom and why. They're really collecting things based on um, if it fits into their collecting policy. If I didn't work for the Smithsonian, I brought them my scientific field book, they'd be interested, sure. But I don't think that they would collect it because I didn't work for the Smithsonian. But maybe I could take that to natural history and say, oh, I have something related to bumblebees and I'm this great bumblebee scientist and here's my note. Is it um, able to be put out publicly? So all archival content um, has varying levels of rights and restrictions on it um, based upon legal stuff. So black and white things that we can all sort of understand, like does it have a social security number on it? Um, does it have medical information, right? That would, not be, that would not be eligible to be digitized and put on the transcription center, obviously. 
But then there are also things like donor imposed restrictions. So let's say, again, I could donate my personal letters to the Smithsonian. And I could say when I donated them, I could say, listen, I talked a lot of trash about my colleagues in these letters. This is a thing that actually happens a lot, guys. Um, and you're welcome to digitize these letters and let the public see them, but not for another 30 years when I'm sure all of my colleagues are gone and won't read the stuff I wrote about them. So that kind of stuff happens. <laughs> and then other things like um, culturally sensitive content, um, if it's, you know, a collection related to uh, Native American um, religious ceremonies or something, um, that's not necessarily something that we would ever put online or in the transcription center because that um, needs to be protected um, and restricted in certain ways to protect that. Um, I think some documents are not too difficult to recognize. And there are some letters for us to um, help us to transcribe this doc document. But um, do this job can um, made by like technology or some system to do the transcriptions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term OCR, optical character recognition, but that's something that's so like, let's say you have a PDF and you know how you control F it and search for specific words in your PDF. That's all done through OCR. So that is like the machine, the computer, um, <clears throat> being able to recognize those words and find them for you. And OCR works really well with typed documents um, because it can sort of, the computer knows that that typed F is an F, right? Um, but it's really doesn't work very well and is really difficult with handwritten documents. And um, there's actually been a lot of research related to crowdsource projects like this um, that proves that um, actually having individual real humans doing the transcription and looking through these historical handwritten documents to be way more efficient and effective and successful than having the machine or the computer do like OCR it because there are so many mistakes, um, especially with handwritten historical materials that it actually takes a longer amount of time for humans to go through and fix that. Um, so we found it to be much more effective to sort of do it ourselves with the volunteers. I was wondering what you think drives a lot of people to um, voluntarily like do these transcription services. At the Transcription Center, you can email me every day and we have some volunteers that do that. You can tell me everything about your life and we can become fast friends. I love that. Um, but you can also never contact me <laughs> and never tell me your real name and participate as little as you'd like. Um, so I know that that's one thing that draws people because they do feel like they can still contribute and be engaged with our historical collections on their terms um, and from the comfort of their own home. Like how many people transcribe every day in the Smithsonian. Pre-pandemic, um, we had you know anywhere from 40 to 100 people transcribing every week um, actively in the transcription center. Um, Post-pandemic, um, when our numbers have, have really skyrocketed in terms of participation because people are looking for something to engage with virtually, we're having anywhere from 100 to 300 people a day transcribing. And I found it really interesting, this idea of, um, digital engagement, um, you know, as a reference archivist and somebody who is really extroverted, I have always wanted to be on sort of the front end of collections. I like museum collections. I love history. I like archives. And I want other people to be excited about that. And I want to, to have people engage and explore these materials with us. I think you can't truly appreciate or understand or engage with history 
um, without truly engaging with primary sources and documents that were created while people were, were living in these various times in history. Um, you know, you're really experiencing history the best and most genuine way by engaging with the materials that were created by those who lived through it. How do you feel that transcriptions are like changing history? You know, you can't just understand a particular event or particular viewpoints on how those things have changed over time without really looking at the content that was created during that time period by everything from famous people, politicians to everyday individuals. Um, it's really important to understanding that bigger picture um, and engaging with those sources. People's stories that we didn't know existed before this year um, alone, we located um, documents from Sojourner Truth in the Freedmen's Bureau records that we didn't know were in there before. Um, uh, a few years ago, um, our volunteers were transcribing a notebook from a botanist um, that was held on the Smithsonian Institution Archives, a male botanist named Joseph Rose. I know it's a great name for a botanist, Rose. Um, and the volunteers themselves realized that there were all of these different handwriting changes in the notebook. And they were like, well, this isn't Joseph's handwriting. Who is this? And so they started to dig a little bit deeper into it alongside some of those archivists and realized that there were over 22 different female botanists uh, from the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, who had actually done a bunch of this work for Rose and had collected a, a bunch of these specimens, but were never named, were never acknowledged, were not in the catalog records. Um, and so they figured that out. What conversation is going on around inclusion of people, you know, in real positions and careers within, you know, transcription? Um, and, you know, what are your thoughts on like how that could be shifted or improved or changed? You know, these kinds of conversations have been long going on at the institution, um, both in exhibits and on our front end and behind the scenes with us internally across our, you know, thousands of employees and 19 different museums and institutions. And Secretary Lonnie Bunch has been very forward um, and transparent about his priorities for um, the Smithsonian as a place of learning um, about these various things. You know, we have our new race portal from the African American History Museum, um, which helps to guide people in understanding racial um, history and justice and injustice um, and how to talk about race. It's really great. Um, and we're continuing to expand on those efforts. Um, and then he's also been really <clears throat> transparent and communicative with all of us internally about his plans across the institution um, to make sure that we are really taking a hard look um, at what is not equitable, what is not inclusive, <laughs> what is not diverse about the Smithsonian. Um, and you know, what role do we play in that as a leader in the cultural heritage field? Um, because people do look to the Smithsonian as an example, obviously, and we don't do everything right. Um, but we are, you know, I think that we've all been we were all really thrilled when Secretary Bunch came on as our newest secretary, and he has continued to um, prove his genuine interest in making sure that he is creating the best Smithsonian that we can have. What are the lessons that um, in the archiving process that we might um, use for for archiving the historic moment that we're in now, involving you know the insurrection, the coup, this election, all of the 
the pandemic, like all of these things, how can we apply some of the uh, lessons to, to today? Yeah, I mean, these are, these are definitely, you know, things that we're, again, all talking about and thinking about not only in the Smithsonian, but in the wider archival and cultural heritage field. Um, <clears throat> the Society of American Archivists, which is the largest national professional organization for archivists here in the United States, um, has had a lot of conversations this year and presentations and webinars and dialogues about um, racial justice and inclusion in the archives. And, you know, we are sort of the kind of gatekeepers of history in terms of deciding what is kept for future generations, how it's described and, and what do our interventions on those historical collections mean for the future and for future researchers um, in terms of who is remembered. So the National Museum of American History, um, has started an initiative called Stories of 2020, where they are collecting information from individuals all over the country um, about, you know, oral histories and photographs and diaries and letters and tweets and all kinds of stuff about what your experience in 2020 has been. Um, and then the Smithsonian's Anacostia Museum, uh, Anacostia Community Museum um, in the DC area, has been um, leading an initiative called Moments of Resilience, where they're again also collecting these experiences of everyday people. I mean, just this past summer, we transcribed oral histories and um, event recordings from the uh, National Museum of American History from Moses Moon, um, who was uh, an African-American, um, self-proclaimed audio man who uh, went, he took all of his stuff from the Midwest and went down to the South and recorded civil rights movement events during the Freedom Summer um, in DC and Selma and um, Mississippi and just, you know, all of these like speeches by um, James Baldwin and John Lewis and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, um, these really powerful, powerful speeches. And he was recording them. And now those recordings are in the American History Center. Listening to Caitlin made me think I probably need to reach out to my own grandma and ask for her letters and accounts of history. You know, transcribing may not be the most glamorous process at first, but there's clearly some gems hidden in letters and chicken scratch notebooks and in our own family's closets. There are so many different ways to shape our history, to conceptualize of the multiple truths that make up the story of our country, our neighborhoods, and our families. The work of the Transcription Center is to invite the public into this process of searching for stories of America. If you are interested in participating more in this project, check out transcription.si.edu.